I'd like to get started this morning with a, a bit of a, a straw poll and get your help on a matter. I'm told that among GPS apps for our phones, there are two dominant apps, at least in the American landscape, that there is Waze on the one side and Google Maps on the other. If you're a Google Mapper, would you just raise your hand for me? Boo. All right, if you're a Wazer, Waze, is that the right word? If you're a Wazer, a few of you? Okay, so I usually love Waze. But the other day I was going somewhere, and for whatever reason, I don't know what happened, but uh, I ended up in Google Maps and it was giving me directions. And we're, we're, we're going wherever we're going, and I heard the, the phone say to me, drive through this light, and then at the next one, turn right. I thought, I don't remember Waze ever saying that to me, but that is a really helpful feature. Because like, you're, you know, you're coming up and you don't know where you're going. Like, is it this light or is it the next one? I'm supposed to look at the road. I'm kind of looking at my phone out of the corner of my eye. I know that's a bad idea. I'm trying to read the street sign with the third eye I don't have to know, is this the right turn? And when it says, hey, go through this intersection and then turn right at the next one. Like, I don't know which developer wrote the, that into the script or I don't know if that's even the right word. Like, people that are smarter than me know that. But that guy deserves a raise. That gal deserves a raise. That was super helpful. And I just, I was thinking about that. I'm like, man, that actually is kind of what we're trying to do with this three-week mini-sermon series on who is Parkside, to get a clear look at where we're going and what to look for and how to avoid a wrong turn. Yeah, we're, gonna, we're going this direction. We saw last week we're going as a church to display the gospel because that's what every local church that preaches the gospel is called to. And if where we're going in that way ever changes, here's something you didn't expect to hear from your pastor on Sunday morning, you should leave the church. The local church fails to be seeking to display the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that's a good reason to change churches. You should not stick around for that. You should have a conversation with us. But that's where we're going, all right? That's not going to change by the grace of God. But you're also asking, okay, now practically, how does that work? How do we get there? What's the wrong turns we want to avoid and the right turns that we want to make? That's what the next two weeks look at. How is it that we actually get to that destination? How do we, as the, your pastors here at Parkside, see and sense God directing us? What does that look like? And so this week, we'll tackle our first two core values that move us in that direction of delighting in the gospel and growing through relationships. And then next week, we'll look at the other two of serving our community and sending into the world. This is how we see our God moving us to display the gospel as a local church. See what we mean by that. And the, the first two tend to be a little bit more internal in the life of the church. Here's how we individually and corporately are being built up and displaying the gospel. And these two tend to be a little bit more external. Here's how we move out on mission for Jesus with the gospel, putting it on display with our actions and with our words. I used a phrase a couple of months ago. It's been a while since I've used it because it wasn't exactly natural in the Genesis series. But I simply said, we are biblically grounded and gospel-centered. Everything flows out of what the Bible says. It's grounded there with a specific and special focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that continues. That's a nice little summary piece there. So, so to dive in here then, let's, let's start with delighting in the gospel. That's the, the first turn we want to make as a church following that Google map per se. And look back at Matthew 22 with me, where, um, where Carrie just read from, and see what is said starting in verse 37. We read, and Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest 
commandment. In other words, Jesus says the the heart of the matter, what all the commandments boil down to is this, love God with everything you've got. Love him with everything you've got, with your mind, your will, your emotions. Love him with and in your relationships. Love him with your time, your talent, your treasure. Love God with everything you've got, every fiber of your being. You might read that passage, hear me saying that, and say, Justin, the passage says love, and you're saying delight, that's on the screen. Are these the same thing? And let me explain a little bit of why we use the word delighting there. Right? Well, love is a good word. It's, it's all over the Bible. It's, there's nothing wrong with that word, but we say we love a lot of things. Right? I love my spouse. I love summer days. I love good music. I love Jesus, and I love you. It's like, well, what does love mean? It's, 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 it's a... It's used in so many different ways that sometimes it's less helpful. Delighting, though, is a less common word. Like, I don't use that word every single day. Oh, that was delightful. Maybe you do, but it's not one that I use every single day. And so we use that with a little bit more specific aim there because the word delighting actually moves down into my deepest affections. There's deep joy there, deep satisfaction, deep pleasure This is what Christians for centuries have been saying is the kind of satisfaction we're to find in God and God alone. The Westminster Shorter Catechism would say the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Deep satisfaction, delight. Or maybe you've heard John Piper say, uh, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There's a a satisfaction, a delight, a joy in God. To to find a more tangible and certainly less significant example, you think about the joy, the satisfaction you have in a cold glass of lemonade after mowing the grass. Oh, this is satisfying. Like, yes, it gives me some energy, some calories, puts a little bit of sugar into my bloodstream, and that's helpful, but I don't go to the lemonade because I need the sugar. I go to it because it's satisfying, like, oh, that's delicious. Or you go to Arnold Palmer there, or whatever your drink is, right? It's like, oh, that's so satisfying. It brings me great joy just to think about it. Oh, I love that. I'm getting thirsty right now that I say it. <laughs> Hopefully you are too. So what does it mean then to delight, to find that deep joy, that deep satisfaction, that deep pleasure in the gospel? It's to think and reflect on who Jesus is and what he's done. To see that Jesus, the Son of God, would love me of all people. That he would know everything about me. All my anger. All my chronic self-righteousness. He'd know all my drug use and all my anxiety. All my judgmental tendencies. He'd know everything that's part of the secret life of my mind. He'd know about my gambling problem. And he would still love me. Wow! He would still choose to leave heaven and come to earth, knowing all of that. Say, I want to die for you, to save you. He would still choose to suffer immensely knowing all of my junk. He would still choose to die knowing all of my junk. He said, Justin, I I don't understand. Jesus, why why would you do all that for me? 
And that's the point. He said, because when I look inward, I feel so, so ugly, so unlovable at times, or all the time. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's why we work so hard to put the spiritual makeup on so we can look all right, at least on Sunday morning. He says, no, no, no. I love you. I know everything. And I chose to die for you. Whoa. That's something to delight in. And I go back to that over and over and over. You see, the person and the work of Jesus Christ are at the heart of God's love on display most clearly in the gospel. And it takes a lifetime of strenuous meditation to even scratch the surface. It's so simple that a five-year-old can grasp it and so deep that you'll never exhaust its riches in all your life. That's something worth delighting in. And friends, this is why we don't do a sermon series in the, on the gospel and then move on to something else, as if you ever would or could move on. No, we say the gospel's not the ABCs of Christianity, that you learn those and then go on to something deeper. No, the gospel's the whole alphabet and Christian learning, Christian growth actually, is learning to read every circumstance in my life through the lens of the gospel. It's to ask, how does the gospel train me to think about this situation, to respond to this person, to process my own feelings and emotions? See, the gospel's not merely how you get into Christianity, it's the whole thing. It's how you grow as a Christian. So to delight in the gospel, it's important that we say what we are saying and what we're not saying. I just said what we are saying, but here's what I'm not saying. saying it's more than knowing facts about the gospel, knowing some good theological definitions or quoting a few verses. Right? Even the demons know the facts about the gospel. The difference is they hate the facts about the gospel that they know. And Christians delight in it, what's been done for them. Think of Judas Iscariot, knew all sorts of Bible verses. He could have quoted Jesus' words to you, and yet he hated, he didn't delight in it. That's why they say every heretic has a Bible verse, because usually they do. It's just that they don't delight in their inner being. Their deepest affections aren't stirred for Christ. This prioritization of, of head knowledge over heart knowledge, you might say. They're not against each other, but you have to have both. You can't have one without the other. Because if you have only head knowledge, what would 1 Corinthians say? Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, so get both of them. Michael Reeves would helpfully come. You see it on the screen here. If you live and grow in your knowledge about God, but do not grow in your delight in God, you are only hardening in sin and hypocrisy. I ask yourself, am I growing in my delight in God or merely in knowing facts about God? It can be easy to slip into that knowledge about God without having true knowledge of God, as J.I. Packer would tell us. So it's more than head knowledge, but it's also more than mere morals and obeying the commands of the gospel. Or you think again back to Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they were gifted rule keepers, strenuous rule keepers, worked hard at morality, and yet they were lost. They were spiritually dead. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus saying, I've kept all the rules since I was a little boy. I've done it all. 
but he didn't delight in what Jesus had done for him. He delighted in what he did for Jesus. Massive difference. You think back to Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon probably in the history of the world. And at the end of chapter 7, if you'd go back and read like verse 23 or so, somewhere around there, Jesus says to people who had kept the rules and done lots of stuff in Jesus' name, depart from me, I never knew you. Delighting in the gospel is way more than the rules that we keep or the things that we do for God. It must go deeper than that. For all of us, and especially with our kids, we must not allow Christianity, Christianity to be defined by moral conformity. This is absolutely critical for us, especially thinking of parents, of Sunday school teachers, of Christian school educators. We must not settle for well-behaved pagans. You have to recognize that non-Christians must be made into new people by God's grace, not merely nice people. And Bible teaching and songs that are dominated by dare to be a Daniel or you can be courageous like David, they totally miss the point. Because anybody who's a lost person can embrace a message of finding inner courage. But that's not the point. It's to delight in what God has done for you, not what you've done for him, or not how he can make your life better. Now, of course, almost nobody means to do this, so if we're serving as a good GPS system here, we're saying we don't want to do that, but how do we avoid it? What's the light that we're supposed to drive through so we turn right at the correct place instead of turning right at the incorrect place, right? What does that actually look like? One simple way is that we examine the songs that we're singing. Right? There's, there's lots of songs on Christian radio and songs we sometimes teach to kids that are simply sub-Christian. They're just not Christian songs. They focus on, on how Jesus makes you feel good or they give you false assurances of faith to kids that haven't actually professed faith or show evidence of faith. I'd urge you, teach your kids old hymns of the faith. There's a family hymn book out in our bookstore from the Gettys. It's a glorious resource. Take that sucker home. Buy one today. Teach your kids those songs. Songs that focus on the content of the gospel and the sinfulness of the human heart. That sing about the utter greatness of God and our extreme dependency on grace. That will give you something to delight in. Songs like the one we just sang. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And that'll preach, won't it? That resonates in my heart. I'm prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave. I mean, that's me, I know that. And that a God would know how much I'm prone to wonder, how much I'm prone to leave him, and would still knowing that choose to love and die for me, wow, (laughs) wow. That's something I can delight in. What wondrous love is this? It gives us a vocabulary for when we fail. Not if we fail, when we fail. To recognize that all of life is repentance. And there's a never-ending stream of grace and mercy in Christ. Maybe one of the, one of the other wrong turns I, would, I want to caution us of that keeps us from delighting in the gospel. And, and this might be more directed at those who have been Christians for a little while. 
Delighting in the gospel means that being with God must precede doing things for God. Let me say that again. Our being with God must precede what we are doing for God. It's critical that we sit with Jesus in the spiritual disciplines of his word and prayer and silence and solitude and fasting that we sit with him in those disciplines before we go and do things for him. Otherwise, our identity becomes penned in by what we've done for God. But it's also important that we recognize those disciplines can actually be twisted in our minds as things we do for God, and they're not actually us being with God. It's as if loving God is the first checkbox each morning. Check that box, I move on, read my Bible, prayed a couple of prayers, thought about the missionaries. I'm good. Right? You need to do those things, but be careful. The answer, the answer is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, well, forsake the spiritual disciplines. No, 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 keep them. They're good. But just recognize that those can be things I do for God instead of being with him and sitting in his presence. Tell you one book that has just helped me immensely in this regard is Dane Ortland's little book, Gentle and Lowly. I don't have a copy here. I did stick a couple in the back. I have three copies of that. I would love to give away today. If you haven't read that, see me in the back. I'll give you a copy. But it helped me so much, Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, to just see what it means to sit at the feet of Jesus, to enjoy who he is and delight in him. But don't read his book before you read the Bible, because that would be a, a grave error, all right? Don't read any book before you read the Bible, for that matter, but that's another, whole other sermon, all right? Um, it, kind of in thinking through these things, Pete Scazzaro has summarized this in a way that I think is helpful. It's, it kind of puts a, puts a ribbon on it. He says this, work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually deteriorate, and us with it. Over time, our sense of worth and validation gradually shifts from a grounding in God's love to the success or failure of our ministry work and performance. And that's when the peace, the clarity, and the spaciousness of our life with Christ slowly, almost imperceptibly, disappears. It could happen to all of us. It happens to me. And so you ask, Justin, I, I see that as a problem, but how would I know if I've taken the wrong turn onto that street? And what one simple way to know that it's happening is if you tend to see Jesus as more skillful than satisfying. You're more drawn to how his skills as God of the universe will improve your life, your job, your marriage, your ministry plans. And you're, you're prone, you're drawn to his skills and how he can make things better than to seeing him as the all-sufficient, satisfying one that can satisfy the very depths of your soul. It's like this, I think about it this way, it's, it's a bit like warm chocolate chip cookies. They are so satisfying. There are certain aspects of a warm chocolate chip cookie that you could say are skillful to stick with the same thing. It, again, it, it gives me energy. I want to know, have that. Or I might have head knowledge about cookies. I know what the recipe is like. But the reason I keep going back to them is because they are so incredibly satisfying. Oh, they're so hot, you know, you could barely chew them up. They just melt in your mouth like, oh, that is the good stuff right there. 
And if you're training for a race or trying to lose some weight, you're actually willing to set aside things that you want so that you can have that satisfaction. Uh, yeah, one more is not going to hurt me. I can still, still make, my, make my time. I can still hit, hit that target. Because the satisfaction is so great in the cookie, you keep going back to it. Guys, my prayer for you and for us as a church is that we would have a delight in the gospel that runs so deep in what God has done for us, knowing all of our failures, past, present, and future. There's nothing you're gonna do this week that doesn't surprise him and wouldn't dissuade him from loving you in the first place. I pray that we would delight so deeply in what he's done that we must have more of him. I can't help but go back to the lemonade, to the warm chocolate chip cookies, saying, I need more of you, Jesus. Like the psalmist would say in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, O God. I want to sit at your feet. That's where we're going as a church. And when each of us display the gospel by delighting in it as a church, that moves us forward in displaying the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. But that brings us to the second, second core value, growing through relationships. Look back at your copy of God's word, Matthew 22. Jesus talks about loving God with all we've got, and then he moves to verse 39. He says, a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Second key command follows right after the first and most of the history of Christianity is Christians toggling between one of two options. One, they're high on love for God and low on love for neighbor, which is a critical mistake. You can't dump the second one. Or they are high on love for neighbor and end up valuing that more than love for God and end up dropping the first one in the name of loving their neighbor. That's most of Christian history is toggling between the two and the work to uphold both at the exact same time. I have a deep delight in God that goes beyond anything else I've ever known and it compels me outward to radical love for others. They are completely inseparable. That is to say that loving your neighbor, loving your brother is essential to being a Christian. Now, you should be a little cautious when I say essential. When I use such big, comprehensive language, is that Justin, is that actually correct? It's more than saying it's a good thing, it's a must thing. Let me take you back to the Bible. Biblically grounded, gospel-centered. 1 John 4, up on the screen. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see, these actually, it actually is essential. They actually are inseparable. If you love God, you must also love your brother. And next week, we'll talk about serving and sending, how that moves outward but today we're focused on within the body, what is that supposed to look like? And just think about a radical love for one another within the body of Christ and how countercultural that actually is. You, you see all kinds of ways our culture pushes against it. I read this week that we have become not a society of homo sapiens, but a so society of solo sapiens. 
We just wall up from each other. Like, I don't need that. It's, it's a dangerous world out there, and I'm just going to insulate myself and not be with anyone, not love anyone. Or you go out, and the polarization seems to be at an all-time high, and there's hate everywhere, but how radically countercultural it would be to see a community that genuinely loves each other in sacrificial ways, cares for one another, honors one another, forgives one another, Friends, loving well, growing through relationships, this is our future. It's quite literally how we grow up into full maturity in Christ, how we grow deeper in our faith. And to be biblically grounded and gospel-centered means that we must have a deep commitment to loving one another. You might think of 1 Peter, or, uh, 1 Peter 4. He says, above all, love each other deeply. Above all, or 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain, faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. Or Colossians 3, over all these virtues, over all of them, put on love, which binds the rest together. We could go on and on and on. But to be gospel-centered in how we love is to consider Jesus' words in John 15. He says, as I have loved you, so you love each other. It's a delight in what he's done for me, John 15. How have you loved me, Jesus? How have I delighted in your love for me that pushes me out to love others in the same way? He'd make the exact same point in John 13, and in John 13, he'd actually expand it out and say, this is how the church grows, not in only in quality, not only in strength, but in quantity. John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's the relationships that the church presses out. That's why we are so careful in all of our outreach activities, our missional events, whatever you want to call that, that they be relational in nature. Right? We're not investing tens of thousands of dollars in social media ad campaigns but in saying, how can we equip the body, the saints, to do the work of the ministry within the relational networks, the friends you have, so that we can function as a church like an aircraft carrier. We come together on Sunday morning. We're all here. You receive fuel for the week, ammo for the week, and healing from any injuries you incurred while you were out on mission, and then you are sent out again. And imagine just three, 400, however many people there are here this morning, Fighter jets going out on mission. The reach is incredible to think of. Genuinely loving one another. Genuinely growing through relationships. It almost seems impossible at times. Like, does that even happen these days? And one of the things I want to do as your pastor, as one of your pastors, is to continually remind you that the challenges we're facing today are not new. That it's easy to look around and see the difficulties, the challenges for this, and blame the, the hardness of it on the external circumstances. And I want to say, no, this difficulty in loving each other, it's not a COVID thing, it's not an election cycle thing, it's not a social media thing, it's not a Biden thing, it's not a Trump thing, it's a human thing. And one way that I like to remind you of that is just to go back to what guys have said centuries ago and see how they felt the exact same pressures that we feel today so that 
we can quit blaming our external circumstances, start looking internal and realizing, I have to delight in the gospel, the person and work of Jesus even more because that's what actually will heal my heart. So a couple hundred years ago, let me give you a little context for one quote I'll share here. There was a, a major conflict within Christianity over theology. Imagine that. And, uh, and there were the Calvinists and the Arminians on the other hand. And, and the Wesley brothers were more in the Arminian camp. And there were some Calvinists who didn't like them. And Charles Spurgeon was a Calvinist. He was over here. But he was distraught at how his Arminian friends were being treated. He didn't move away from his Calvinism. But he said, you've got to love each other in a better way than this. Listen to what Calvin would, or Spurgeon would say. To ultra-Calvinists, his name, that's Wesley, his name is abhorrent as the name of the Pope to a Protestant. <laughs> Pretty abhorrent. He says, you only have to speak of Wesley, and every imaginable evil is conjured up before their eyes, and no doom is thought to be sufficiently horrible for such an arch-heretic as he was. I verily believe that there are some who would be glad to rake up his bones from the tomb and burn them as they did the bones of Wycliffe of old. Men who go so high in doctrine and add so much bitterness and uncharitableness to it that they cannot imagine that a man can fear God at all unless he believes precisely as they do. They're pretty strong words he had, right? And I merely go there and take a four minute aside to point out the difficulty in loving each other well isn't new. It will always be hard and the solution will always be the gospel of Jesus Christ that breaks down our hard hearts by seeing how wondrously he loved us and when we delight in that, we are compelled to love as he loved us. It's always been and always will be easy to see what's wrong in others and what's wrong in the surrounding culture, and really difficult to see evidences of grace in our own life, in the lives of those around us. Always hard, always important. And so as that happens, this polarization, what I fear can happen is we can swing the pendulum all the other way and we idolize being together, being united. Let's just get along. But you have to recognize that loving each other has to first flow out of loving God and what he's done for us. And if you set up loving others as the ultimate thing, it ends up being destroyed because love for one another can't ever be the ultimate thing. It's a love for God that then flows to love others. Dane Ortland has said it this way. He says, putting fellowship with one another above fellowship with God destroys both. Because I end up being proud of, man, look at us. Look how we're the love one another church. We're so good at that. And self-righteousness comes right back in and destroys you. See, last week we said that relationships in the local church are a commitment to love. This is the context for our growth as designed and ordained by God. And others are built up in this way, but so are you. Just think about this for a second. For you to forgive someone who seems unforgivable or honor someone who seems totally unhonorable or to love someone enough to confront them and have a difficult conversation, for that person to be forgiven and honored and be able to speak truth to them, that builds that person up. They grow through relationships in that way. But it's not just them. 
Because for you to do the work to forgive and to honor and to love and to confront, that forces you to grow as well. Because surely none of us have the strength on our own when we are really wronged to pursue those things. On our own, we just tap out, move on, get bitter, and that's the end of the story. It forces us back to the gospel that actually breaks down my hardness of heart that in the context of relationships is actually where I grow and others grow. It's critical that we see that. I love this little formula that my friend Jeff Strickland put together. It's probably not original to him, but I first heard it from him. He simply says, grace plus truth plus time equals transformation. Here's what we mean by that, that in the context of relationships, it requires grace. That when I see something that's wrong with somebody else, I might be right in seeing it, but it doesn't mean I'm immediately calling it out. I recognize they've got a long way to go, and I've got even further to go. And the sooner I can get a right view of myself, the more gracious I can be to others who don't have it all together. But if you only live there and never have truth, you're an enabler. And so you've got to have grace and truth, the willingness to say difficult things, to take people back to the scriptures and say, here's what the Bible says about this. And you've also got to realize it'll take time. I always want people to change faster than I change, right? Maybe you can relate to that. So it takes grace plus truth plus time, and that's where transformation is found. I mentioned Jeff a second ago. He's planting the Fields Church in Westfield. I hope you're praying for them. They're having their interest meetings right now throughout May. Uh, I was able to meet with him this week. God is blessing in some amazing ways. Uh, but I just ask you would continue to pray for Jeff and the Fields as they're getting ready to plant and we're supporting them in that. Uh, it's a bit of an aside, but it's important that we have them on the front burner here. As, as we're talking about relationships and how do we live out grace plus truth plus time equals transformation, how do we do that? I think there's, there's two groups within the congregation that I want to talk to, and they're a little bit different in how they're at. And I just help you or I'd invite you to think about where do I fall in this? There, there, there's one group of people that say, hey, I'm part of a church. I've committed here, but I kind of shrink back from relationships. It's difficult for me or I feel busy and tied down by other things. I just want to say, relationships in the local church are absolutely critical. Maybe you've not prioritized them for a while, but may today be a step of repentance from that and obedience in pursuing Christ. There is no impact without contact, as they say. You've got to get close to people and it will be messy. So see what God is saying and respond in obedience. But there's a second group of people that are kind of, I would call you human Velcro. What do you mean by that, Justin? You're just like a people magnet. Wherever you go, you're able to bring people in and more people in and more people in. And I want to say to you, man, praise God that you are able to have a ministry to so many people in that way. And I want to encourage you and say, you have limits, Yes, continue to use the gifts God has given you. Continue to pull people in. But sometimes growing through relationships means I recognize, man, I'm at my limit right now. I've got a lot of really strong relationships. These are pushing me forward. I'm welcoming new people in, but I need to help you get connected to somebody else because I'm just at my limit right now. And both of us have got to hear that because if we run away from relationships and never prioritize them, or... 
we try and swim from here to London, we both end up failing. You can't do both, right? And so you've got to recognize where we're at. So, so practically then, practically, let me just lay out a couple of simple ways to grow through relationships. A couple simple ones. These should not be surprising or revolutionary to you, but a good reminder. First one to start with, commit to a local church. Many of you have committed to this particular church, but if you haven't committed to a church yet, or you're watching online, I would encourage you, commit to a local church. And if you have committed already, think of simple ways to live out that commitment. Look around at the people in the rows around you. Is there somebody that's been sitting there for a couple years and you might know their first name, but you don't know a whole lot about them? Say, man, like, this is a little awkward. Like, I, I know you always sit right there, or you've been there for a while. I, actually, I don't even know your name. Is there a way I could just pray for you this week? And then just stop after the service and pray for that person. Or invite them to, you know, have a, a Culver's Butter Burger with you. Simple ways. It's, it's not jumping into the deep end right away. Second thing, join a group. Now, right now, for us, that's Sunday school classes. On Sunday nights during the school year, that's the Bible Institute. Part of our strategic planning a couple of months ago uh, have some things coming down the pike that we're pretty excited about. Looking forward to, by God's grace, launching a small group ministry somewhere in the next, you know, six to 12 months. But don't wait for that. Don't push it off. Join a group now where you, know, you sort of think about the life of Jesus. He, he ministered to the masses, had the 12 he was close to, and then the three, Peter, James, and John, that he was closest with. And you start to see that funnel in the life of the church in a similar way. So get connected to a group, a smaller subset where I can have more life-on-life -life contact with this group and grow through relationships with them. And then third, ask a friend to go deeper. Ask them to go deeper. And as you ask, again, start with simple things. Say, hey, we're coming into the summer, two months, June, July. Could we set up four, six, eight times we could get together to read a couple chapters of the Bible and talk about it? And then after the summer, let's stop and see what our schedules are like because it's going to get crazy into the fall. Put an end date on it. Or you say, Justin, I, you know, I'm not gonna, maybe we're not going to do that or we're, for whatever reason. And find a friend and say, hey, could we commit to pray for each other on every Monday of the summer? Like there, there's a couple brothers that have, have committed to that for me and, and we text each other every Monday almost. And what an encouragement to know, I'm thinking of them, they're thinking of me, what's happening in your life today? simple little step, but I'm asking a friend to go a little bit deeper where I can share the joys with them and the difficulties, confess sin and rejoice at God's grace. And as we go deeper together, it actually enables us to go deeper into the gospel because I don't have to cover up my weaknesses. I can say it's been covered by Christ and there's healing when I talk to you about it and I confess it to you. Dane Ortland would say it this way. He said, the fundamental distinction between churches is not that some of them have sinners and others do not. The fundamental distinction is that some churches have honest sinners and other churches have self-protecting sinners. My friend, don't be a self-protecting sinner. Like, yes, I'm not asking you to share everything with everybody. Of course not. But it's really common for us to say that I'm being strong for somebody else and fail to recognize that grace frees me to be weak. 
And when I have security in God's approval, it means I no longer have to be ruled by seeking your approval. Let me just say, if somebody chooses to honor you with some vulnerability, some transparency, to let you into their life, that is not the time to scold them for their sin. It's not the time to enter into exhortation and 12 ways that you've defeated the difficulty that they are presently stuck with and how you've moved on past it. No, come back with the promises of the gospel. You might go to Colossians 2 and remind them that Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood before you. He nailed it to the cross. He took the rulers and the authorities of this age and put them to open shame and has conquered that guilt and that shame that seems to be conquering you right now. You might take them to Romans 1 and say, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's none for you, brother. There's none for you, sister, if you're in Christ. Don't listen to Satan's lies. You might go back to Philippians 1 that John read previously and remind them that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I know you don't see it right now. It seems like you're going nowhere right now, but he's always good. He always keeps his word. Take him to Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and remember it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is to say, he'll give you both the desire and the strength to fight. Say, Justin, I don't have even the desire right now. Ask the Lord for it. Lord, say, I don't even have desire. You can be honest with him. And he says, I will give you the desire to fight. I don't have the strength. He says, I'll give you the strength to fight. So take people back to the promises of the gospel as you go deeper with that friend. Maybe you hear me and think, Justin, that sounds like something a pastor should say. Sounds sort of rosy. But in the real world, that's just not how it works. Not gonna happen. It's too scary. I get that. I think it's hard for you to confess weakness. Imagine what it's like for a pastor who supposedly is supposed to have it all together to confess weakness. I understand. But friends, there's no other way forward. This is God's plan for our growth that we would delight deeply in the gospel and that would push us out to love one another radically. And that is how we grow. Let me me conclude with a a little parable from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Silver Chair, the fourth book in the Chronicles of Narnia. What happens is there's a little girl named Jill and she gets lost in a scary forest. And Jill is about like us. She she represents us as humans. We're, We're lost in a scary forest wondering how to proceed forward. And she cries and cries and she develops this terrible thirst. She's moving through the forest and she discovers a stream of water. And as she comes to the stream, she sees a really scary lion right next to it. Here's how Lewis describes their dialogue. The lion, knowing she's thirsty, invites her to come and drink. Jill said, may I? Could could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that 
Without noticing it, she'd come a step closer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Friends, that's where we find ourselves. There's only one stream. There's only one path to joy. There's only one path to life. It's through the person and work of Jesus Christ and delighting in him. And there's only one path to growth as he is ordained through relationships in his church. This is the path forward for us. It's the only path forward. And I know as we talk about that, there's all kinds of difficulties that come to mind, challenges that seem like they cannot be overcome. And I would just urge you, as we get ready to wrap up here and go to communion and pray, to confess whatever pushback, whatever difficulty you are feeling to the Lord and ask for his grace to break through, to give you a greater delight in the gospel and to provide growth through relationships for you and for our entire church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That you, the sinless one, Jesus, would lay down your life for us. What delight that should bring us that you know everything in our lives. All the things we don't want to be known, all the things we want hidden, all the things in the dark, you know them, and yet it didn't keep you from loving us at all. Oh, may we delight in the glory of the cross that you would send your son for us. May we gladly count our lives as lost that we could come to know the glory of your love on display at the cross and be pushed out to love others as well. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.